What a beautiful song to be reminded that if we thirst, if we are weak, if we are fearful, or if we feel lost, we can come to Jesus. What kind of leaders do you like to follow? Those who appear confident and strong, those who make an impression of power, or those who follow the Lord even though they seem to lack the advantages of the world around us? Do you tend to evaluate leaders based on worldly accomplishments or what outward appearances they seem to exhibit or what kind of confidence and promises they make for us here and now? Uh, The people of God have always struggled to figure out who they should follow. The story of the people of God in the Old Testament has been the story of who is ultimately worthy to be followed. I invite you to open God's Word. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter uh, 21 and 22 uh, this passage is a longer passage. It's a, it's, it's a story of really two chapters that put in contrast for us two kings. So the message this morning is entitled, A Tale of Two Kings. We've already covered the first part of this message a few weeks ago when we covered uh, the focus on King David in chapter 21. Today, we're continuing this The second part of that message, a tale of two kings, by considering the contrast between David, but the focus today will be on King Saul. I will only read verse 22, um, chapter 22 today, but I want to remind you that if you want to refresh yourself on what what is going on in this whole chapter, in in this whole story, really chapter 21 and 22 should be read together. But for our purposes this morning, let's read from chapter 22, verse 1, to the end of the chapter. Verse 23, God's word for us this morning as we look at the story of of the people of Israel as they were wrestling with who they should follow. Here is God's word for us this morning. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? 
Yet all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and the captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to, this, to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their sword, their hand, to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doag, You turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he surely would tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear. Father, you have revealed yourself in the Old Testament in many ways. And even this passage that we have just read is a part of what you have revealed to us so that we may learn about what kind of king we need. Father, help us to understand your word. I pray for help in the proclamation of this word. And Father, I pray for help in the hearing of this word. Cause our hearts to hear. Cause our hearts to receive your word and to worship you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Large majority of the book of 1 Samuel is 
about who reigns over God's people. Earlier in the book, the book started with prophets. The Lord would reign over his people through prophets and judges. And, and, and early in the book, the people of God said, we want a king to be like the nations. And in making that request, the Lord made it very clear that the people of God have rejected the Lord as being king over them. So God gave them a king in Saul. But Saul turned out to be a king like the nations because he turned against God and his word fairly early on in his kingship. If you remember chapter 13 and then again chapter 15. So God decreed to take away the kingdom from Saul. That was at the end of chapter 15. And yet for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul remains physically on the throne. Even though he was the rejected king. During Saul's reign, God identified early on, after rejecting Saul, God identified a new king to be. That's David. And a few weeks ago, uh, we have looked at chapter 21 which focused on how David fled from Saul's service because Saul began openly and vehemently seeking to kill David. In chapter 21, David officially fled from Saul's service. And we saw how in his flight from Saul, David responds in weakness and despair. And, and yet the Lord provided for David. And in chapter 22, we see more of what David does as he fled from Saul. The first six verses, the first five verses of chapter 22, we find out how the Lord, one of the provisions the Lord gives David is to start forming around him an army. And we get to see in the first few verses what kind of army would feel enthusiastic to start following David. Listen to, listen to verse 2. All and everyone who, is, who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered around him. This was, this was the Lord's provision for the, the anointed king. This is, this is how the army of the truly anointed king begins. Would you want to be a part of that crowd? Would you want to associate with that, that kind of people? Would you like to follow the, the, the kind of king who is a fugitive and, and persecuted? That's how 20, chapter 22 begins for us. But as we look at this chapter... Most of the emphasis in chapter 22 is not really on David, but on Saul. David functions as, the, as a contrast here. He will be the bookend of this chapter. The first five verses focus on David, and then the last three verses of the chapter focus back on David. 
But in between, most of the attention here is on Saul. And the question is, what kind of reign, what kind of leadership style, what kind of motives and, and principles led Saul in his kingship? Here in this chapter, we get one of the, the most um, detailed descriptions of Saul's reign after he was rejected in the rest of this book. For the rest of this book, we'll see Saul running after David, but here's where we see his heart in the most clear way. So as we look at this chapter, we're going to learn about Saul. Three things. Saul keeps God out of the picture. What characterizes Saul's reign as a rejected king is that Saul keeps God out of the picture. Second, Saul eliminates God's servants. Saul eliminates God's servants. And third, we're going to see how Saul's plans are not the final word. Saul's plans are not the final word. Let's look at what kind of king Saul proves to be. How his reign is characterized. Here at this chapter is a wonderful vignette through which we can observe what was going on in Saul's heart and mind and his plans. First point one, Saul keeps God out of the picture. In verse 6, the author turns his attention from David to Saul, who from this point forward is uh, starting the pursuit of, of David throughout David's wilderness journey and wanderings. This pursuit will go on until chapter 27 in the book. But before Saul starts the expedition of, of hounding after David, the author tells us, stops to tell us about a conversation Saul has with his servants. Saul's speech in this chapter is a very revealing moment into what was going on into Saul's heart and mind. The key point of these verses, of the first, um, from verse 6 to 10, the, the key point is that Saul keeps God out of the picture. Let's see how he does it. In verse 6, he's standing in a high place, presumably from which he can see far and wide, and he's standing under a tamarisk tree, under the shade. And he has a spear in his hand, not the first time in this book that Saul appears with a spear in his hand. And with all his soldiers and, and servants, commanders around him. Now, you, you just pause here for a moment and say, what kind, of, what kind of effect does this picture give you as a reader? An, an appearance of power? Safety, control, oversight at a height, under the shade, comfort, with enough people around you to support you. This is a leader who looks like he knows what he's doing, who's confident, who, who has it all together, and who's about to accomplish a lot. Who would not want to be in his army? But the appearance of safety and power is quickly dispelled when Saul opens his mouth and begins telling us how he views himself and the situation he's in. He feels anything but secure. 
Now, don't let the external appearances fool you. People or situations can appear calm or fine on the outside. But on the inside, there could be great trouble, great fears, great insecurities. And this is Saul's story. In his insecurity, Saul does not appeal to the Lord at all. Remember what David told the king of Moab? He says in verse 3, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. What a wonderful vignette into Saul, into David's heart. He was waiting to see what God will do for him in the midst of his trouble. His confidence and his, the posture of his heart was a posture of waiting to see what the Lord will do. Take that scene of David's heart and now contrast it and see what Saul's words reflect about his heart posture. He's insecure. He's afraid. And notice, notice what Saul does in his insecurity and how Saul keeps God out of the picture. First, he manipulates people through possessions and power. Saul keeps God out of the picture by manipulating his people with wealth and power. Look at verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? Now, do you see what Saul is doing here? He's appealing to the loyalty of his servants by appealing to their cravings for material possessions and power. What a contrast. What a contrast with a crowd that was gathering around David who were in debt and in distress. Saul contrasts himself here with David through the ability to give possessions and power to his servants. Now, did Saul speak truthfully in the moment? He did. Was David able to give vineyards and, uh, and fields to his army at this moment in the story? No, he's a fugitive. He couldn't even provide a shelter and a safe place for his parents in the land, let alone for, for the army and the commanders. There's a sense in which in that small time frame, in the moment of the story, Saul is correct. David has no place of his own where he could live in safety, let alone to provide material possessions, fields and vineyards for his soldiers. At this moment in David's life, David, I think, foreshadows Jesus when Jesus told his followers that the Son of Man has no place where to lay his head. The contrast between King Saul and David is so clear. Saul has to buy the loyalty of his servants. David doesn't. This chapter closes with David being followed by another new recruit, Abiathar, 
who informs David of what Saul has done. David, even as a fugitive, attracts people to follow him and become loyal to him, despite the fact that he makes them no promises for vineyards and power. Saul gets the loyalty of his servants by promising them possessions. Now, Saul doesn't, what Saul doesn't tell his servants is that his kingdom and reign will not last. What Saul does not tell his servants is that the promises he makes to his servants, the lure of giving them possessions, of giving them vineyards and fields, has an expiration date, has a time limit. The Lord has decreed that his kingdom will come to an end. But nevertheless, Saul is making these promises. He's making these appeals to possessions and power. David, on the other side, as we will learn in the story of, of 1 Samuel and then in, the second, in 2 Samuel, David, who is promised a kingdom, will receive a kingdom who will have no end. What a difference. If, if the servants of Saul could just know the whole picture, the whole story. Now, they didn't know at the moment. All they knew was about Saul. But we, the readers, we get the benefit of seeing both. We get to see the both kings. We get to hear about both kingdoms. And we're going to be asked, which king would we rather follow? Second of all, Saul keeps God out of the picture by throwing a pity party. He not only manipulates his people with possessions in the short run, but the second way Saul keeps God out of the picture is by throwing a pity party. Uh, Notice what he does in verse 8. Saul says, again, this is Saul's speech to his servants. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Do you see what Saul is doing here? He's explicitly feeling sorry for himself and trying to get others to feel sorry for him. This is, this is a pity party that Saul is throwing in front of his commanders. Friends, throwing a pity party is one of the subtle ways we can keep God out of the picture in our lives. We try to get the attention on our suffering on how much we have been um, hurt or uh, people are against us. Throwing a, a, a pity party is one of the ways that we can actually turn away from the Lord and turn our attention to ourselves. I am so glad and uh, encouraged that our students, uh, our college students are working through uh, a study on Friday nights on Desiring God. Uh, by John Piper. Uh, thank you, Pastor Taylor, for leading our students in that endeavor of discipleship. Um, I know you're not yet through the book, but let me give you a quote from the end of the book. I'm not going to tell you what page it's from, so you can just read the whole book and look for this quote. Don't ask me for the page. But listen. Listen to this wonderful description that exists between pride manifested through boasting on one side and pride manifested through self-pity. Both boasting and self-pity are fruits of pride. But they, show in man- they manifest themselves in different ways. And, I, and Piper uh, nails it in bringing this distinction. So let me read you his words because I, I think it's very helpful. 
the nature and depth of human pride are illuminated by comparing boasting to self-pity. Both are manifestations of pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. Boasting is a voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is a voice of, the pro- of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. And the desire of self-pitying does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It's the, it's the response of unapplauded pride. Friend, can you see how a wounded ego tends to keep God out of the picture by drawing attention to ourselves in our suffering and wanting everybody else to feel sorry for us in our hurts? Look at me. No one is sorry for me. None of you know what I'm going through, says Saul. When others sin against us, and it's not a matter of if, but when, When others sin against us, we can sin in response in many ways. But one of the sinful responses is by throwing a pity party and demanding the sympathy of others around us. And sometimes we may even do that as a way of just manipulating the situation. Self-pity often goes hand in hand with another sin called self-victimization. This is a third way we see Saul keeping God out of the picture. Not only he manipulates people, but he throws a pity party. And a third way he does it is by playing the self-victimization card. Saul clearly puts on display um, his suspicious theories that everyone is against him. In verse 8, he accuses his servants that they have conspired against him. Saul is the first king who comes up with conspiracy theories. Everyone is against me. You, my servants, all of you are against me because you're not telling me what David is doing. He makes it sound like everyone is against him. The whole world is against him. Saul is playing the victim card. Now, let me say this. In a sinful and broken world, it is likely that at some point in our lives, we will be the target of the sin of those around us. Sinners sin. Can you say that? Sinners sin. And they will sin against you. And when they do that, that will hurt. And sometimes the hurt is incredibly difficult to bear. Some of the experiences of of sin that we get from others are so serious. Could be physically, could be emotionally. We want to come alongside those who suffer at the hand of others. At the same time, 
one of the ways to respond to being sinned against is often the temptation to play the victim card. And we want to be on guard against this response. When we play the victim card, we assume in those moments that God has not been there to witness the evil. We assume that God has not been there to, or God is not there to bring the true justice that we think we deserve. We assume that we must fight for ourselves to vindicate ourselves in the present. Playing the victim card is one of the ways in which we keep God out of the picture in our lives. Saul keeps God out of the picture by playing the victim card. And a last way, a final way in which Saul keeps God out of the picture is by avoiding what God decreed for him. Saul avoids what God has decreed for him. He ignores it. Did you notice who Saul is blaming here for all this mess? Who is Saul blaming for all this mess? Look at verse 8 again. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Who is Saul accusing and blaming? Jonathan. His son for being the source of stirring up David against Saul. Now what is wrong with this picture? It's not true. If you've been with us in the unfolding of this book, you might remember that one of the, the, one, one of the moment, high moments in the book that changes the story of King Saul is chapter 15, when God decreed to Saul, after Saul has rejected the word of the Lord, God decreed to Saul that God is rejecting Saul, taking away the kingdom from him, and raising another one, a better one. The narrator has told us early in the book, God is going to raise someone. In verse, just hear the words of 1 Samuel 15. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul has heard who is causing someone else to be risen, to, be, to come to power. It is the Lord. But here, as this is unfolding, Saul reframes the circumstances by keeping God out of the picture. Everybody's against him. There's only one person that Saul does not confess that is against him, and that's the Lord. Saul is a man who wants to avoid what God has decreed and ignore his decrees, thinking that he can go against his ways and still get to keep his throne. Saul is fabricating this conspiracy theory that his own son has turned against him to help David. Saul would rather blame his son as being against him instead of recognizing that God has turned his face from Saul because of his rebellion. Saul blames everyone except himself. There's only one person that Saul doesn't consider of doing wrong, and that is himself. 
What have I done wrong to bring about this mess? He sees the blame in everybody else. And he's willing to come up with conspiracy theories. But the one person he will not point the finger to is himself. Friends, when we conveniently avoid those parts of God's word that we don't like to hear, we too are keeping God out of the picture. When we know that God opposes what we desire, and yet we want to hold on to those desires and wishes, we are tempted to tune God out in order to protect our wishes and our plans. And we're willing to blame everybody else if those things don't turn out, except ourselves. We blame others, but we refuse to accept that the all actual culprit might be ourselves, the turning away from the Lord. And in tuning God out, it's easy for us to turn to manipulation. It's easy for us to, to rely on self-pity. It's easy for us to play the victim card. It's easy for us to avoid dealing with what God has already revealed to us in His Word. Friends, I wonder what are the ways in which you might be tempted to lure, or you might be tempted to tune God out of your life. This is the first thing we see in Saul's kind of reign and approach to his kingship. A second characteristic, or a second thing that Saul does, Saul eliminates God's servants. Saul eliminates God's servants. We see this in verses 11 through 19. Saul's strategy to keep God out of the picture proves that he has no limits to what he's willing to do. One of the servants of Saul, Doag the Edomite, informed Saul about David and his visit to Ahimelech the priest. And Doag reveals that Ahimelech not only gave David provisions and food and a sword, but that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. And when Saul hears from Doag what Ahimelech the priest has done, Saul summons not only Ahimelech, Saul summons the entire household of priests at Nob. And we're told in verse 11 that all of them, all the priests at Nob, came to Saul. Saul interrogates a priest by saying to him in verse 12, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and had inquired of him, of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Again, Saul accuses his servants of conspiring against him. Saul also uh, accuses uh, David as ari arising against Saul and waiting, waiting to li lying in wait to, 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 to attack Saul, which is exactly the opposite of what the facts are. Saul is the one who actually keep, uh, seeks, seeks to take David's life. It's easy to assume false motives in others because they appear to be a threat to us. It's easy to assume false motives in others because they appear to be a threat to us. Now just imagine how often you and I may be tempted to approach and think of someone else who seems not to like us or to do acts against us or to do things that seem to threaten us. And we so easily assume false motives in them. Saul is outraged that Abiathar inquired of the Lord on behalf of David. 
And the priest replies to the king. He says, King, David is the most honorable man in your, in your team. He's your bodyguard. He's your son-in-law. He has acted honorably in all his ways. Why would I not act honorably towards him? Ahimelech has no idea of the rift between David and Saul. And Ahimelech also says, Is this the first time I've inquired of the Lord for David? It seems like for Saul. The part that hurt the most was not just the bread or the sword given to David, but that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David and did not tell Saul. There's a fear in Saul that David and the Lord are one, and he wants to fight that. Here's a king who is afraid of David being helped by the counsel of the Lord. And he's ready. He's ready to kill anyone who would side with David. So Saul commands his guard to kill the priest. And we're told in verse 17 that the servants of the Lord, of the king, would not put out their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Here the servants of Saul would rather disobey Saul than kill the priests of the Lord. In their disobedience, they reveal that Saul's authority as a king has just been drained. That he is a king, but he has no ultimate authority over them. They may be in Saul's service, but, Saul, but that does not mean that they will be joining him in killing the servants of the Lord. Saul finds someone else to execute the job. Doag, the Edomite. And we were told in the earlier chapter that he was the chief of the herdsmen of Saul. What was an Edomite doing in the first place, being the chief of the herdsmen of Saul? Weren't there enough men in Israel to be a chief for Saul in his cabinet? What was Doag the Edomite doing? I don't know. But here is an irony that none of his, servant, of his Israelite servants are listening to Saul in this decree to act against the servants of the Lord, an Edomite. The people of Edom have always been an enemy of God's people. And here Saul is using the services of an Edomite to execute uh, the massacre uh, against these priests. David wrote a psalm about, about Doag, Psalm 52. The psalm starts with displaying the pride and confidence of the boastful evil man. Doak personifies the proud man who puts confidence in his own plans to act against God's people. The psalmist makes clear that taking pride in one's plans to bring destruction to God's people is a futile and short-lived journey, even though successful in the moment. The psalm ends on the final doom of all evildoers and of the confidence God's people can have in a joyous outcome against the evildoers. In 1 Samuel 22, the appearance of Doag on the scene is a dark moment in the book. And the fact that Saul would be the one who would, who would, who would uh, use Doag in his service is just mind-boggling. Yet he kills not only Ahimelech, he kills 85 priests that day, but the, but the massacre doesn't stop there. We are told in the rest of this chapter that Saul ordered the complete destruction of the entire city of Nob. It was a city of the priests, 
All of them, all their families, and all their belongings were completely destroyed, even their animals. We're told in verse 19, And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. Have you heard this language anywhere else in this book? If you've been with us, you perhaps remember chapter 15, when God commanded Saul to kill the Amalekites and to wipe them out entirely as an act of God's judgment. And what did Saul do? He kept the best of their animals, and he kept their king alive. And here with Nob, at Nob, with, with the servants of the Lord, the priests, Saul proves to be more ferocious and treat more harshly the priests of the Lord than he would, ki- than he would treat the enemies of God. How wicked of Saul. He would not do against the Amalekites what he was willing to do in this moment against the priests of the Lord simply because they sided with David. How wicked. Saul was supposed to be the king who protects God's people. Do you remember chapter 8? Give us a king who will fight for us. And here is the king who is now fighting against us. Oh, friends, wanting to have a king like the nations does not turn out for the people of God. The king they thought they needed to protect them will be the very king that will be the cause of their destruction. The point of this massacre is to show how viciously on one side Saul acted to protect his throne, even after the Lord decreed that Saul would lose his kingdom. It shows how great disregard Saul had for God and his priests. Saul thinks he can tune out God by getting rid of his priests. Saul thinks that he can protect his throne by getting rid of those who represent the Lord and his anointed. Friends, the application for us is an application of warning. When we take the path of taking God out of the picture, sooner or later, it can lead us to justify any wrong with the motivation of keeping ourselves secure. In the interest of keeping our throne, keeping our domain, keeping our reign, keeping, may I say, our rights to kingship. We will be willing to do anything. There will be no limits. That's a path Saul began early on. And this chapter shows us how deeply, how deeply wicked that path can take us to. It's also a warning in telling us that the king who opposes God and his reign will eventually oppose all who are with the Lord and his anointed. We should not be, we should not be surprised if kings who try to protect their own thrones will eventually act against the Lord and their anoint, his anointed and his servants. And then the, the story turns to a final moment, a final scene. The scene in the third part that shows us about Saul is that Saul's plans are not the final word. Yes, he execute, executed 
this horrendous massacre, taking the lives of an entire city. But no matter how vicious Saul plans, Saul's plans prove to be, there's one descendant who escapes, Abiathar. Abiathar flees from the massacre, and he flees after David and tells him what Saul has done in destroying the entire city. And notice David's immediate response. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasion to the death of all the persons of your father's house. Remember Saul was willing to blame everyone for the mess he thought he was in, except himself. He was willing to blame everyone for his troubles. Here's David, even though he did not raise a sword against Ahimelech, against Nob. Here's David taking the blame, willing to take the responsibility, willing to recognize his responsibility in this act. And in one sense, it's true, had had David not gone to Ahimelech to visit him, the city of Nob would have still been alive. David David is willing to, to look at himself and take responsibility. What a contrast with Saul who's not willing to look at himself and only looking to look at others and blame others. But this responsibility on David's part perhaps happens at at another level as well, has significance in another sense as well. On one one side, David is not the cause of their death. Saul ordered their death. Doeg executed their death. Yet David humbly takes the blame upon himself. For the sin of others. Do you know someone else who is willing to accept and take upon himself the blame of the sin of others? Well, friends, this is David again in small ways foreshadowing a greater king who is willing to take upon himself the blame of the sin of others, to absorb the sin on himself. As great a threat as Saul mounted against God's priests, this chapter ends not on the note of destruction, but on a note of safety. As dark as this chapter is in the entire story of the, of the book of 1 Samuel, it is amazing that one of the most beautiful phrases of safety in the entire book, is in this chapter, in verse 23. And it is, this note is found on the lips of David. Look at verse 23. He says to Abiathar, Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life, seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. It's as if the narrator wants to tell us, The safety is not with Saul, but with David. The the safety is not with a Saul who turned against the Lord and rejected his word, but with a king-elect, David, the fugitive. And in this contrast between Saul and David, we see where true security lies. It's not in the king who does what he pleases. It's not the king who seems confident and secure, sitting on a height of a mountain, 
under the shade of a tamarisk tree, with guards around him, with spear in his hand, security lies not there. Security lies in a fugitive king who appears to attract the downcast, the distressed, those in debt. David is here foreshadowing Jesus. In promising safety to Abiathar, with me you shall be in safekeeping, even though I am being persecuted. With me you will be safe, Abiathar. In, in, in these words, I think David is, is foreshadowing the words of Jesus, who also said in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, he said, The chief, the thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear the promise of safekeeping? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My friend, the question before us as we consider this tale of two kings is to consider which king would we rather follow? What kind of crowd would we rather associate ourselves with? What kind of values would we rather live by and with? The section presenting Saul started with a picture of Saul surrounded by power and security, but it was all facade, because when he begins speaking to his servants, we find out how insecure he feels. Saul intimidates his servants with the lure of wealth and power, and when that doesn't work, he threatens with death. As we will see in the next chapter, from this moment on, pretty much most of the, most of the people in Israel begin following Saul and serving him because of the fear of death that he has spread throughout. It's sick. It works. You can get people to do what you want, either by manipulating them with wealth and power or by threatening them with a fear of death. But more powerful than Saul's threats and the destruction that he breathes out more powerful in this chapter than that is the sound and the promise of safekeeping on the lips of the king-elect. He offers safety to all who turn to him. But he's just a sign and a post to the ultimate king who offers ultimate security, lasting security. And the question before us is this. As we consider this tale of two kings, what kind of king would we rather have? What kind of leader would we rather follow? What kind of crowd would we rather associate with? Let's pray.